0: Donald Trump could just as much be railing against robots as he is against foreign workers <laughs> because labor automation also takes away jobs. I don't see him rallying and campaigning against robots.
1: Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guy, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Welcome back, you little Liberty Rat Scallions. You. We are here once again at the Lions of Liberty podcast, where I strive to advance the ideas of liberty through a series of great conversations. This is episode number 199 of this program. We are so close to 200, and it's going to be a special one. I'll tell you about that more later. Until then, you can find today's show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash 199. Today's show is sponsored by Health Excellence Select, an incredible free market, affordable, legal alternative to your standard Obamacare corporatized insurance. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is a leading global strategist, a world traveler, a global contributor for CNN, and a best-selling author. His latest book is Connectography, Mapping the Future of Global Civilization, and he is here to discuss that with me today. He is Mr. Parag Khanna. Parag, before we get going, I've got one question to ask you, and that's if you're ready to roar with me. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. I've never heard a lion actually say hell yeah, so I, but I like it. I like the attitude. <laughs>
0: I'm a multilingual lion, actually. Very
1: good. Now, um, you know, like like I said in your intro, I mean, your very brief intro, I, I probably could have spent 30 minutes on your intro alone with how much you've done. But, you know, what I really want to get into first is how you first took interest in the subjects that you do so much research on in global politics, markets, and the way we view the world.
0: Well, it's a great question, and uh, you know the answer is simply travel, 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 and more travel. I was raised just traveling. I was born in India. I grew up partially in the Middle East, in New York, in Germany. And so to me, just trying to find the connections among the places I have been going to, the places I've lived uh, since uh, I became an expat uh, about five years ago, moved to London and now moved to Singapore. So I'm always just looking for uh, for the connections, for the kind of big picture, basically, that helps to bring together politics, economics, social issues, environmental issues. And um, that really drove everything for me. It determined, you know, where I've lived, where I've studied, uh, the things I've and write books about. Just about everything has been driven fundamentally by loving travel.
1: And In your youth, you know, when you decided to first travel the world, was that something that, you know, your parents or people around you encouraged you to do? Because I know in the United States, I mean, we're really not encouraged to travel that much, most of us anyway. Whereas in Europe and, you know, Australia, other countries like that, kids are basically are encouraged to take that gap year, as they call it, to get get out and see the world a bit. So what was that like from your perspective? Were you really encouraged to travel or is that something you kind of just decided on your own?
0: No, it's just part of you know my family and the upbringing, and we just you know traveled a lot my parents before I was born, lived uh, you know across uh, various parts of Africa and the Middle East. Um uh, my brother was born in Africa. You know, we were both basically raised in uh, Abu Dhabi and Dubai before moving to America. so, it's just part of you know who we are, and it's it's what I've become. And you know I do think though that we can encourage it. You know it even sounds trite these days. Whenever I'm asked, you know, what should people do more of, what should young people do more of to get this, the skills they need to get an edge on the competition, and my answer is in fact always travel. You know, you mentioned the gap year, for example, that uh, Australians, Europeans, and others do. We absolutely need that for Americans as well. And it doesn't mean you have to leave the country, especially if you can't afford to. But we could be encouraging national service and taking a job or an internship, something civic, something even even commercial or business-wise, but in another part of the country, in another part of the world. All of that is not a sacrifice. It's opportunity. It's what we should be encouraging people to do.
1: I couldn't agree with you more because, I mean, I, I've done a decent amount of traveling myself, not as much as you have and not as much as I'd like to have done. But I mean, Every time I've traveled, it's always been a rewarding experience, not just because I've had fun and and seen sights and that sort of thing, but really just by meeting new people, by seeing their perspectives, you really do gain an insight into how people view the world. And that's what we're going to get into more now with your book, Connectography. So in Connectography, you really challenge the way we currently view the world, which for most part, for many people, is Basically, strictly along the lines of what we see in our global maps, the borders of the world's nation states. So why is this method of looking at the world becoming an increasingly outdated?
0: Right. Well, that is exactly the operative question. You know, our maps are inherently biased towards the political world. It's as if natural geography comes first. And then how we segment the world politically comes second into, at the present count, about 200 different countries. But that is not necessarily the way the world is truly organized and certainly not the way the world truly works. So what I've done is to create a large set of maps and obviously a big, thick book uh, to go with it that explains them to point out that the total length of international borders in the world is about 500,000 kilometers you know about you know 350,000 miles whereas the total length of all of the highways and railways and internet cables and oil and gas pipelines and electricity grids and so forth is about 75 million kilometers so we expend a lot more energy and effort and investment connecting people and cities and societies than we do in dividing them so why is it that our maps only show the things that divide us? It makes no sense. And so to me, connectivity is the true reality, and division is actually you know an artificial uh, construct. Now division is important. There's all sorts of uses, important uses for countries and nations and borders. Uh, very pragmatic purposes. I'm not one of these people who thinks that all borders should be brought down and we should live in one kind of you know chaotic society. I think that, you know, we can move towards things like that in a step by step and sensible way. But the more important thing is to appreciate that if you want to get to that world anyway, whether your vision is utopian or naive, if you want to get there, you should be focusing on the connectivity.
1: You actually referred to maps in your book as one of history's greatest propaganda tools. Can you just expand on that a little bit?
0: Absolutely. Because, you know, maps have been used by political forces, whether by popes or by kings or by presidents and armies to demarcate what is theirs and what is not theirs. And so, of course, uh, whether it is uh, Israel versus Arabs or India versus Pakistan or China and its many neighbors, you know, they put out their versions of maps to show what territory is theirs and not just land, of course, but also at sea. They, uh, you know, portray what their exclusive economic zones are in the oceans. This is what's going on in the South China Sea right now. So the maps that we project and the maps that we can convince other people to accept are the ways in which we attempt to change the legal reality to suit, um, you know, what we want the ground reality to be. And so in that sense, maps have always been a very, very uh, important propaganda tool.
1: It's interesting because in theory, when you think about what a map is, it's in theory just a tool for navigating the world, for knowing our way around and you would think that a tool such as like that would need to be very objective it would need to have a standard however really especially upon reading your book you really begin to realize that most maps are very subjective especially in in certain things that you mentioned, you know, contested areas in the Middle East, contested areas with India and Pakistan, their maps that they put out are going to be different from each other. So we can't just look at one map and expect to get a full view of the world. We need to take a much broader look at things. And that's exactly what you're doing in your book. Now, one thing you do mention one term you use a lot in connectography is the supply chain society. So can you expand on that a little bit and just describe what exactly is this supply chain society? And why is it just kind of ever increasing and what it's in its relevance today?
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, the purpose of infrastructure is to connect, whether it's energy, whether it's transportation, whether it's communications. We are connecting. We're not connecting people. We're connecting uh, cities. We're connecting data. Right? And so when we do that, what we're doing is we're fulfilling this ancient urge for supply to meet demand. And I say that supply and demand is not just an economic principle. Supply and demand is really the most powerful force in the world. And what we do when we build out all of this infrastructure is we let the supply of energy, the supply of ideas, the supply of people to more seamlessly and efficiently meet the demand, wherever it may be. So we have more people who live outside of their country of origin than ever in history. 300 million people, like one out of every, you know, 15, 16 people in the whole world lives outside their home country, probably because they're working somewhere else, right? They're fulfilling a function in the global economy somewhere other than where they're from, somewhere other than where you would think is their natural home. Money flows through these conduits, uh, you know, whether it's electronic banking networks, you know, data and our voice call that we're having right now over Skype, this is supply meeting demand. This is connectivity, and this is the supply chain world. And the more infrastructure, the more connectivity we have, the more supply chains flourish. And that is the fulfillment of this fundamental economic and social law of supply and demand.
1: Yeah, it's a, a great example you point out. Our conversation right now, because even a hundred years ago, well, you were born in India. If you were born in India hundred years ago, most likely you were probably going to live most of your life in India. So, I mean. If, this, if we were trying to have this interview, I mean, I may have never even heard of Parag Khanna, you know, if this was taking place 50 or 100 years ago. Whereas now, I find your book on the internet, I read a little bit about it, I realize it's something I want to talk to you about, I send you an email, next thing you know, we're connected in a way that you could just never even imagine, even 10 or 15 years ago. So how is this, the way we're connected through technology, really, how is that clashing with those traditional values that we discussed before, the traditional methods of looking at the world and how sort of that's all been crafted by our traditional
0: borders. Right. And I think people often get confused that just because you're born in one place and never leave that place, that that's the only identity you can have, want to have, or allowed to have, or should have, or that's like the most ethical identity is your national or your ethnic identity. That's not true. What technology allows people to do is to have multiple identities. You may still never leave Egypt or Saudi Arabia or South Africa or India or Brazil. And by the way, despite what I was saying earlier, you know, the number of people living living outside of their home country, that's still only, you know, like I said, three, four, five percent of the world population. So most people in the world still don't leave their country of origin. So, you know, there are also there are a billion people crossing borders every year. That's still only about 20 percent of the world population. So let's assume that most people still cannot afford to or don't want to leave the political country that they were born in. Still, with technology, they can accrue or add on to their lives, these new kinds of identities, they can learn new languages, they can associate with certain causes, whether it's a religious cause, or a business group, or environmental cause, whatever the case may be, you can now have those increasing that layering of new identities, because of technology. And I think that's obviously a wonderful thing.
1: Now many people that listen to this program will, you know, hear you talk about the supply chain society and how and this is connecting us in new ways and think it's a very wonderful thing. And I think overall it probably is a wonderful thing. At the same time, I think there might be some concern over when we talk about the supply chain. A question that is gonna arise here is, you know, who is exactly controlling this supply chain. And obviously, there's not one contiguous body in the world controlling all the supply chains that are connecting us. But I mean, is there any danger of, say, certain elites or mega corporations kind of seizing control of this supply chain society or, or large segments of it? Does that concern you at all?
0: Uh, Of course. I mean, it's a very valid point. And there isn't one universal answer to this. It really depends on what technology, which infrastructure, what industry we're talking about. I mean, it would be very, very easy to just simply say, oh, everything's becoming a monopoly, right? But that's not actually the case. Um, And I think it's very unfair to only point to one piece of evidence. So, you know, let me give you a few examples. First of all, you know, building infrastructure and enabling supply chains is a public good. Someone has to build the pipelines for energy to get from point A to point B. Someone has to lay down the internet cables that cross the ocean floor. These are expensive tasks and only certain governments and certain companies or consortia of companies in the telecommunication space, or the financial space or the energy space can afford to do this. And it's a good thing that they've built up the capital to be able to do this. Otherwise, we wouldn't have energy flowing around the world. We would have very high energy prices, right? We wouldn't be able to have data calls for absolutely free because data would be very expensive. Data Transfer would be very expensive. So we have to appreciate these public goods and these public utilities, whether they're provided by governments or by by corporations, first of all. Second of all, they enable – a lot of things. So, for example, if you look at supply chains, which is just another way of saying logistics, right? Moving things around. Now that we have all of this infrastructure, it becomes cheaper for a small company selling, you know, let's say you're making alpaca sweaters in Peru, right? I mean, your alpaca sweaters used to only be able to be sold in the Andes mountain region, but now it becomes cheaper and cheaper for you to get those alpaca sweaters You know, on a truck, on a good highway to a railway station to an airport, put on a a plane, you know, DHL or FedEx or whatever, and uh, sent around the world. And now you're part of the global economy and you're taking mobile payments or e-payments or wire transfers back to your little company in Peru. Um, You know, that's not possible without infrastructure and supply chains. So sure, there are industries like, you know, search engines, you know, where Google obviously dominates, right? There's financial institutions where, you know, up until now we've got, you know, 10 or 15 banks that have most of the world's assets under management. There are monopolies in various areas, but oftentimes we don't appreciate that even if they're monopolies, they're also providing certain very necessary public services. So I don't like to have some kind of totally, you know, left or right wing ideological answer to these questions. We're in a huge phase of expansion of offering of connectivity as a service. And as a utilitarian, you know, I think that's, again, a very positive trend on the whole.
1: Do you see this trend, this supply chain society trend, kind of helping many people get out of poverty i mean just in your example they're talking about you know the alpaca sweaters you know before that maybe if someone is making those sweaters they can only sell it to the 15 20 people in their village or maybe anybody any visitors that might pass through and now like you mentioned he can send these sweaters all around the world he could build an alpaca empire now and that just wasn't (laughs) possible before this happened so i mean do you see this as, as largely a positive trend then
0: Yeah, I mean, you're asking, do I see it? To be honest with you, I don't think that one is entitled to many shades of opinion on this subject. There are Nobel Prizes that have been given out that have proven exactly this point. Last year's Nobel Prize in economics, Angus Deaton, some years ago, Michael Spence from NYU. What their work has demonstrated in the grandest possible sweep of history is that it is precisely uh, connectivity to supply chains, integration of societies into the world economy, the Rise of transportation networks and trade networks worldwide, that has been the driver of global economic growth. That has been the agent of reducing poverty. That has been the way in which societies become uplifted and skills are built and, you know, sort of um, the latest technologies flow. There is absolutely no debate or dispute about this question whatsoever.
1: You know, you mentioned you know how there's no dispute, and I think among a lot of people there isn't. But you know, here in America, I'm not sure how much you're following the U.S. Uh, presidential election. You probably can't avoid it. But you know, we have a couple candidates on both sides of the aisle. We have Donald Trump. We have Bernie Sanders, and they both hammer home. That in this issue of trade and unfair trade, unbalanced trade, they're both very opposed to the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which in theory, or so we're told, is supposed to really open up trade and make things easier, make the supply chain uh, society even more efficient. Now... I know this is something like a 10,000 page document, this TPP. I don't know how much you know about it. But do you think there is any legitimacy to the concerns that some politicians will bring up that I, I presume is just echoing people that they see as their electoral base? Are there concerns to, I guess, something that isn't quite free trade, but maybe managed trade or something we might call corporatized trade, which is kind of the direction that they point to it as?
0: Mm -hmm. No, these are very valid points. We can either talk about the specific or the general or both. So TPP and TTIP, which is a European-American trade and investment negotiation that's going on right now, these are all part of a much longer-term process of global trade liberalization, right? It began a century ago. You had the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the Multilateral Agreement on Investment, the World Trade Organization, and so on and so on. And in every single decade, we have forces that are pro-liberalization and opening in forces that are against it. Because, of course, there are winners and losers at the tactical uh, level when it comes to specific industries and their ability to move across the supply chain, across geography, for wage arbitrage and so forth. So even though this trade liberalization on the whole, you know, does, of course, bring more people into the world economy, it does most definitely reduce poverty, like I said, on a utilitarian scale, on a global planetary world social scale of looking at the net impact on 7 billion people, most definitely, it makes more people better off. But within that, if you're Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders and you're making the point that, hey, wait a minute, the way these things are negotiated, either certain companies benefit because the ways in which they get to protect their IP and dominate foreign markets or, you know, other companies where wages are cheaper and there aren't labor rights protections or environmental standards. And so their costs are cheaper and they went out and steal jobs that way. Those are all factually things that are going on. But that's a complaint about, you know, the competing strategies. It's a way of saying, hey, one country is doing something that we think is unfair, you know, or they have an industrial policy and we don't have an industrial policy. That's all the tactical competition within this broader reality that a global economy, global trade and global trade liberalization is ultimately a positive and progressive force. So I think that we have to appreciate the debate is within that context. It's not an all or nothing debate, whether or not we should be having trade. It's about the kind of, you know, the tactical and strategic disputes going on within that. And I think that is something that's fair. I can be for the TPP and for greater access for American companies to Asian markets and Asian companies to the American market, which, of course, brings down costs for Americans in many ways. And at the same time, I can say, hey, wait a minute, the U.S. should be a bit more clever about how it negotiates these things and not give away too much without taking some at the same time.
1: Sure. I mean, that's what we always hear from Donald Trump. That He always says, this is a bad deal. We're getting a bad deal. He never really gets too deep into specifics. But (laughs) I think what he is trying to do more so than get into specifics is really play off uh, a general feeling in, I guess, heartland America of what you might say. You know, so many people have seen the manufacturing jobs and their wages fall over the last 20 years. And for bad or for good, a lot of people are pointing their fingers at, you know, at NAFTA, at the TPP, at these global trade deals and saying, hey, maybe I'm not thinking about global poverty and how that's being helped, but all I know is my situation isn't getting better, and I'm assuming that because there's these mega corporations and governments making these deals and I'm getting screwed, therefore, this must be sort of a, a negative thing. This must be something that they're doing for their own benefit, not necessarily the benefit of everyone.
0: Yeah, but let's bear in mind that everyone in America is not the exactly 11% and shrinking percent of the labor force that is in manufacturing jobs that are going to Mexico or to China. So I don't believe that 10% of the American workforce should be speaking for 100% of American society. So I have great sympathy, as everyone should, for what happens when people in, you know, small towns in the Midwest where, you know, they're either losing their jobs or their wages have stagnated, their working conditions aren't so great. You should definitely have sympathy for them. There's a lot of things that can and should be done for them around skills retraining, moving up the value chain, thinking about new services industries that they should be working in and so forth. Over the medium term, not even just the long term, I'm not trying to make some kind of detached academic argument with the luxury of, you know, 30,000 foot view. In the medium term, even societies that employ more people in services rather than manufacturing wind up having higher wages and higher standards of living. America is itself a great example of that. Most of the American workforces and services and America is one of the richest countries in the entire world. So there's no question that it is very possible to be sacrificing, you know, more and more of these manufacturing jobs. And either to other countries or to robotic labor, because, you know, Donald Trump could just as much be railing against robots as he is against foreign workers, <laughs> because labor automation also takes away jobs. I don't see him rallying and campaigning against robots.
1: You now, for comedic
0: purposes, I wouldn't mind if he did start railing against robots, but that's another story. <laughs> it would be hilarious. But the fact is that, you know, you can't have it uh, both ways. You can't just criticize trade and then not say what you're going to do about upskilling uh, the American workforce, because the opportunity is there as it has been throughout history uh, to provide people with new jobs and new skills that are ultimately going to pay more.
1: Well, speaking of paying more, Parag, I actually need to take a minute out now to tell my listeners out there how they can actually pay less for their health care with our great sponsors at Health Excellence Select. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I purchased my own health insurance. So personally, I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare my deductible more than doubled, my premium shot through the roof. And I'm just sitting here thinking, what am I actually getting for this? I'm a healthy guy. I don't go to the doctor. I really hadn't even been to a doctor for any major medical problem in years and years and years. So why would I spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month and then have to spend six or $8,000 in deductibles before I even see a dime of coverage for my healthcare? It just didn't add up. And it doesn't add up. It doesn't add up for most of us. But luckily, there is an alternative out there now. It's an alternative known as health sharing. And health sharing is simply awesome. (laughs) I've gotten paid for every single medical bill I've submitted in full, 100%. This is not a joke. After I spend $500, I get everything else back. And our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch. They'll do all the work for you. They will find your doctors. They will set appointments for you. They'll provide you 24-7 access to doctors via Skype so you don't even need to go to a doctor or pay a dime half the time. Health Excellence Select is truly revolutionary, and you guys are doing yourselves a disservice if you do not look into this amazing alternative to your standard, corporatized Obamacare health insurance. You can learn more by heading over to lionsofliberty.com health, or if you're ready to sign up, you can directly call my representative, Jeff Cantor, at 440-283-6849. Tell him Mark from Lions of Liberty sent you. So, Parag, how do you see this ever-increasing connected society, how do you see this affecting areas of war and peace. Because throughout history, we've seen so many uh, wars that were essentially resource wars, so many conflicts in the world due to resources. So is there any hope that this kind of greater connectivity between mankind can actually lead to a more peaceful society? Or is it possible that the other side is true that, you know, certain people in certain countries might actually see a lot of this as unfair, justly or not, and perhaps lead to even more greater conflict?
0: Yeah, I'm really, really glad you asked this question because it was an area of research that I hadn't originally intended for the book, but it wound up becoming a a very big part of it and justifiably so because we're actually at this amazing tipping point where we don't really need to have resource wars anymore. If you think about the mantra of like peak oil, you know, 10 years ago, the world is going to run out of oil and we're all going to be fighting over it, and China is trying to lock it up from the Middle East to Africa, right? And oil prices are going to go sky high. Now fast forward to the present where oil is falling through the floor, they can't do anything to prop it up It's going to be structurally low for our entire lifetimes, I'm completely convinced. And the reason is because supply has now exceeded demand and because we're producing so much alternative energy and because of technology, uh, natural gas, which is uh, taking a hold in markets around the world, is uh, not only cleaner burning than oil, but has become a global market rather than just a local or regional market. We have energy abundance. And therefore, even at a time when you have uh, you know, conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and you have Libya falling apart, and you have uh, tensions with Iran, and Iraq has collapsed, and you have tensions in the South China Sea, you can have a world that feels like it's blowing up, even oil-producing countries. And despite all of that volatility, oil is collapsing. Why? And the reason is because supply is meeting demand. It's because there's so much supply, it's more distributed geographically, and we've built more infrastructure to get that energy from point A to point B. So there's no real reason for a conflict in one little corner of the world to derail the entire global energy industry or energy markets or send prices soaring. It's not logical. It doesn't need to happen. And it isn't happening. So this is an incredibly good thing. The whole notion that we were going to be fighting resource wars 10 years ago has just disappeared. And that's absolutely because of connectivity. So that's one of the reasons why countries would be fighting wars – that's off the table. Now, it doesn't deal with water, for example. I could imagine water wars, but the irony of talking about water wars is that you could fight over water and it doesn't produce more water. So I think that we should be thinking about water in the same way that we think about some of these other essential commodities, which is, well, how do we generate more of it? How do we conserve it? How do we distribute it? Not how do we fight over it? So the logic of what has happened in a very positive way in the energy industry should be applied to other areas as well.
1: It's interesting what you mentioned there about you know the price of oil and you know it used to be that we were told you know we watch out for war in the Middle East because man oil prices are just going to skyrocket if things get crazy there but by all accounts, in some ways, things are kind of crazy there. You've got a, a really bad war in Syria. You've got ISIS uh, expanding its reach in many ways. And yet it really hasn't affected our price of oil in the way that we're kind of told that these kind of regional conflicts will. I mean, is that all due to basically what you're saying? The fact that yeah, the, ISIS may take control of some oil and they may you know have a certain geographical area, but that's pretty much all they're affecting. They're not able to affect the global market in a way that maybe they would 20 years ago.
0: Exactly. Again, I think that's all about distribution. And the more distribution you have of supplies, of technologies, the more access countries have, the more resilient they ultimately become. So, Prague, do you view that the world, that the way is currently changing
1: in the way that you document in connectography, do you think that this in any way sort of signals the end of the relevance of the nation state or at least the way that we currently look at the nation state?
0: No, it's about the way we currently look at it. You know, We view it as the only source of identity, as the only administrative or political authority or the only regulatory vehicle and the ultimate sovereign authority in all of these ways. That's already rubbish, let alone 10 years from now. The fact is that regulations are driven by a whole host of international forces and agreements, as well as public and private forces and so forth. That's the provision of public services, the provision of welfare and security, which is really the sort of archetypical notion of what defines a state are provided by private actors as much as public actors in most of the world. And of course, as we were talking about at the beginning, there's many sources of identity, not just the notion of your kind of ethnic nationhood. So all of those are literally just academic, antiquated academic constructs that have literally no bearing in reality anymore. Kids should certainly not be taught that the foremost you know unit in the world is the country a large part of this book is about cities because for the last 5000 years the city has been you know the physical embodiment of, you know, sort of uh, human geography. And now it's, again, ever more the case that most of the world's population lives in cities. The urbanization rate is so rapid that by 2030, you know, two thirds, maybe even three quarters of the world's population will live in cities. There are about 50 cities that completely dominate the world economy. Each of those cities is far more important than the country that they're in, or most of them are more important than the country that they're in or the region that they're in. So I don't view the map of the world as being 200, political states that matter equally. I view the map of the world as 50 megacities that matter way more than all the other cities and almost all the countries in the world. And they're not warring with each other. They're connecting to each other. And this gets to your question, obviously, about war and peace again. Cities look at the world very differently from countries. Cities don't want to demarcate political boundaries and fight wars over them for no reason. Cities want to connect to each other profit from each other, trade with each other, invest in each other, move people and money and ideas and technology between each other. And that's exactly they want nonstop airline flights between each other. That's what cities do. That's how cities think. That's how cities are actually conducting their own diplomacy today. So to me, a world built around 50 or 500 important cities is a a way better world than a world of 200 nations that are jealously guarding their borders.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because you never hear the mayor of Los Angeles threatening to bomb some city (laughs) halfway across the globe. (laughs) Like you might hear a... a presidential candidate threatened to do the same thing so that, that's a very good point about cities and how they interact and and hopefully this trend continues because overall I see uh, the world connecting in in so many different ways it can really only be a positive thing both uh, from the economic standpoint and and lifting people out of poverty and and really even from a political standpoint from like you said lessening a lot of these conflicts because I don't care what your political perspective is nobody really wants to see more conflict in the world except the people initiating that conflict and I think that's for the most part a very small percentage of people so I think this is indeed a positive trend. The book is Connectography. I believe it drops on April 19th. We will link to the book on the show notes for this episode. And uh, before I let you go, Parag, first of all, thank you for joining me. and, And also before I let you go, feel free to give everybody a roundup of any other way they can find your book and how they can find all your other work and contact you.
0: Yeah, thanks so much, Marco. Well, Paragkana.com is my website. Connectography.net is the book's website. You're absolutely right. It drops on uh, April 19th. And there's a lot more in there than even we discussed today.
1: We only scratched the surface, for sure.
0: Thank you. <laughs> but I really appreciate it. Prakana, keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Mark. Great to chat with you.
1: All right, gang, I hope you enjoyed my conversation there with Mr. Parag Khanna about his book Connectography. Again, you can find that linked over at the show notes for today's show at lionsofliberty.com slash 199. Now, this was a little bit different than a typical interview on this podcast. This is not a deep dive into libertarian philosophy or a discussion about individual rights that you might come to expect from this show. And hey, you may have even heard a few terms that kind of rankled you from him as he called himself a utilitarian. But this was not the kind of show where I'm going to hammer my guest on that because I didn't bring him on to discuss political philosophy. I really don't honestly know much about uh, Parag Khanna's political views. And that's not really what this conversation was about, but I, I really do find his work fascinating because it really plays into something that I've always been fascinated in, which is how the world works, how the world connects, how the world interacts with each other. And I really do believe that as the world becomes more connected, the prospects for a more peaceful and more prosperous world for all of us are just that much greater and one interesting thing that Mr. Khanna talked about was the power of cities and how cities really connect with each other and how they do so generally peacefully. I mean, you don't see Mayor Garchetti of Los Angeles threatening to bomb St. Louis over any sort of dispute whatsoever or bomb Mexico City for that matter. That's just not how cities operate. And this really plays into what I believe to be a proper model of a rights-respecting government, that being a private property city-states uh, who essentially run their own business. You know, city-states that 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 are literally based on the private property of its owners and governed literally at the will of its of those private property owners. Now, when you have city-states like this, they can conduct their own business. They can have, you know, what many people might see as similar to what we currently call our local governments, only you know, with a little more consent. Let's put it that way. And they can basically take care of their own business on their own property, contract out with each other to come to larger agreements on laws or trade or what have you. And this kind of model really leaves totalitarian politicians looking to rule a nation state out in the dust with nowhere to really turn as the relevance of these large nation state governments become really less and less while trade between individuals becomes the driving factor in a society more so than ever the key in this whole process is that we need to avoid certain mega corporations and governments from controlling this whole process from controlling the technology through patents or other regulations but regardless the prospects for a more peaceful world due to how we are connected, are certainly wonderful. And I was happy to highlight that with Mr. Pragkana here today. If you enjoyed this conversation today and would like to hear more like it, well, first of all, you can head over to the full Lions of Liberty Archive. Unless you're one of the early diehards, there's no way you could have heard all of our wonderful conversations here on this program going back about two and a half years, they're all over at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast for every single edition of this program. Also, you can come join the conversation with us. You can do so by heading over to our private group on Facebook. It's called the Lions of Liberty Forum. If you just type that in your Facebook search bar, it should pop right up there. And as long as you don't look like a spam bot of some kind, we'll let you right on in. You can also find our main Facebook page, facebook.com slash lionsofliberty. You can tweet to us if you're a tweeter over on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. You can also subscribe if you're not already subscribing. It only takes a button in an app, whether it's iTunes, your podcast app, Stitcher Radio. Subscribing to the show is a great way to ensure you don't miss a single one of our episodes, whether it's two episodes of The Mothership, The Lions of Liberty podcast, every single Monday and Wednesday, or our brand new spinoff, Felony Friday. Every single Friday, John Odermatt takes a look at the broken criminal justice system. And of course, he'll have another one for you this coming Friday and then next week. Next Monday, to be exact, is our big episode number 200. And I was grasping at straws here. What can I possibly do for episode 200? What can I possibly do to sum up these past two and a half plus years of podcasting about the ideas of liberty? And boy, have I come up with an amazing solution because thanks to an excellent contact of mine, I can happily announce that for episode 200 this coming Monday, I will be interviewing the man who inspired many of us to get excited about the ideas of liberty, to delve more into politics overall. Yes, I'll be speaking with Dr. Ron Paul this coming Monday. I am very excited. I hope you guys are very excited. And I couldn't have done this without you guys, because if I didn't have listeners, if I didn't have people tuning in every week, I wouldn't have kept doing this. I wouldn't have kept going each and every week, eventually two and three times a week, putting this show out there for you guys. And it's all culminating. Well, hopefully not culminating. We plan to keep going and going and going beyond this. But it's really quite an accomplishment, uh, something I'm very excited about, to interview finally a man who I've been following since about 2000 or 2001, long before he even ran for president and inspired so many to look further into the ideas of liberty. So this coming Monday, episode 200, do not miss it. I will speak with Dr. Ron Paul on this very program. Until then, folks, what have I been asking you for nearly 200 episodes? That is to live long and live free.